Okay, so we're looking at Proverbs chapter 3, 5 through 6, the, the uh, biblical value of trusting in the Lord with all our heart and leaning not unto our own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall guide, uh, 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 oh. anyway, it shall guide us. Um, and I presented three questions. Is God worthy of my trust? Does God truly know better? And does God truly care? And currently we're looking at the, the second question, does Father know best? Or does God truly know better than myself or others in regards to things that I'm going down? Especially if you remember the story of the man with the burning hut. Yes, ma'am. You're hired. Sorry. So, um, where was I? Oh, yes. Especially when your hut is burning down and everything seems to be going up in smoke. And, you know, sometimes... um, Raise your hand if life makes sense to you sometimes. Anybody? It doesn't. Sometimes life just doesn't make sense. And uh, so, but... You know, we still trust God in our current circumstances, trusting that He does know better. And it, when I was thinking about this, it kind of reminded me of the incident back here in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, this is where Peter decides to go back to his his uh, fishing uh, career, his occupation of fishing, and he says in John 21:3, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go of fishing. They said unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. And when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. So they spent all night, this is what they do for a living, they spent all night uh, trying to catch fish, and they didn't catch a thing. And so as they were beginning to pull their nets in, getting ready to head for shore, this man from the beach calls out to them, you know, how'd you guys do? Did you catch anything? And of course the answer was, no, we didn't catch anything. And then this stranger, remember it says right here they didn't know it was Jesus. Then the stranger said to them, uh, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you shall find. Now stop and think about that. What difference does it make what side of the ship that you throw the net? In a lake or in a sea? Does that make any sense to you? I'm sure it didn't make any sense to these guys either, but what did they do? They went ahead and they, they did just what they said. They threw the net on the right side of the, sh- of the ship, and what happened? Well, they weren't able to pull in the net because it was so full of fish. So full of fish. And then John 21, 7 says, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now the spiritual application of this incident, and even those things that don't make sense to us, and yet we still trust in God, even when our hut is going up in flame, is this. When we learn, as we learn to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean out on our understanding, that allows God to reveal himself to us. That allows God to reveal himself to us. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want, don't we want God to reveal himself mighty in our, in our behalf, in our circumstances? And that's, that's what happened there with the guys throwing the net on the other side of the ship. Jesus was then revealed to them. Remember when I said that the Lord has two primary goals in mind in all of our circumstances and everything that God does? Can you remember what the first thing is? God's glory. All things work together for God's glory. Can you remember what the second thing is? Our good. Our ultimate good. So there's the two main purposes that God works out in in every situation. For his glory and for our ultimate good. For our ultimate good. Now, can you remember what that difficult part for us is? What I mentioned? Starts with a W. Waiting. Waiting. That's the hard part, isn't it? That's the hard part, waiting. That's why I brought up the, 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 the story of Joseph's life. I mean, here was a man who did no wrong, but yet he was 
hated by his brother and sold into slavery, falsely accused, thrown into prison, forgotten about in prison. But eventually he was promoted. That was, a, that was a long waiting period for Joseph because God had given Joseph a vision that he would be promoted. And that even his brethren would come and, and bow down before him. That took some time though, didn't it? But yet when you read about Joseph's life, we never read about him complaining about his situation. We never read him accusing God of anything. What we read of is a man who is faithful in his walk with the Lord because of the, because of the vision that God had given him. And when his brothers came to him thinking that Joseph was going to uh, have, um, what's the word, revenge on them after Jacob died, this is what Joseph said to them. In Job, uh, Genesis 50:19, he says, Fear not. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is day, as it is to this day to save much people. So right there we see God accomplishing his two purposes. God received the glory and God worked out for the ultimate good, not only for Joseph, but for his brethren and for all of those people, even even the people of Egypt. Even the people of Egypt. <clears throat> It's the waiting that's hard, isn't it? Psalms 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. It's the waiting on the Lord that's tough. It's the waiting on the Lord that's, that's, that's tough. But God uses that period of waiting, because what he does is he converts our faith from an intellectual head knowledge into a heart knowledge, into a reality in our life, into a reality in our life. And that's what we want. We, we read the words on these, in, on these pages, and we believe the words on these pages. I mean, we intellectually said, yeah, I see that, I see that. But when we're through that crucible, God takes the words and puts them into our life. That's what God wants. He wants his words in our life. He wants them to be real in our lives. And that's when you really learn about God. That's when God reveals himself to you. When he takes the words from his pages, lifts them up off the pages, and puts them into your heart and your mind. That's what he wants. And God knows all the variables. He knows all the ins and outs. He knows everything about us. And so we need to learn to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. Jerry was here. All of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. That's my buddy Steve. He did that. So, I left us with this question. Can we ask God why? Are we permitted to ask why? Are we permitted to ask why? <clears throat> Is it wrong for us to do so? Turn to the book of Psalms. Turn to the book of Psalms. Um, sometimes people think it's sinful to ask God why. Or they don't think it's right. Or they don't have the right to ask God why. And I know there's a teaching out there that tells you to, to stoically um, receive your lumps. Stoically receive your lumps, suffer through whatever you're suffering through, and wait for God to work it all out in the end. And there is a teaching out there that says you should never ask God why. Why, why, why? Well... Are we okay to ask why? And the answer to this question is um, yes and no. Because <laughs> the key, what is the key to everything? It's hard attitude, isn't it? That's really the key to everything. It all depends on one's hard attitude. All depends on one's hard attitude. So Psalms, turn to the book of Psalms. If um, you ask why, 
then be prepared for at least three possible answers. Uh, one, not receiving an immediate answer. Okay? Two, you may receive an answer, but you may not like it. Or three, uh, you may not get an answer until you see him in glory. That's the three possibilities. Now, our flesh doesn't care about that. Our flesh doesn't like that, but our flesh is the problem, isn't it? Because our flesh tends to be a hindrance to our trusting. And it's our flesh that we need to mortify if we want to grow in our faith. So, I for one believe it's okay to ask God why. It just all depends on the heart attitude when you ask the question. So looking at the book of Psalms, let's take, uh, let's take a look at the first Psalm. Psalms chapter 10 and verse 1. Psalms chapter 10 and verse 1. You know, if there wasn't a precedent, a precedent in the Bible of someone asking why, then I think you would be justified to say you're not allowed to ask why, but we do have precedent. We do have precedent. In Psalms chapter 10 and verse 1 we read, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? So essentially, uh, the psalmist is asking the same kind of questions that a lot of folks ask. Uh, why, why isn't God intervening? Why isn't God stepping in here? Why isn't God doing something? Because that's the context of uh, Psalms chapter 10, if you happen to read through Psalms chapter 10. In the psalmist's perspective, it's as if the wicked are getting away with it. And God's not doing anything about it. It's, it. The wicked are thumbing their noses at God and going about in their wicked ways, their murder, their thievery, their oppression. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, why don't you just whack them? Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? Now, be careful about that kind of question. Because you may be the wacky. Right? So be careful. Be careful. But his, he sees the injustice. He sees what's going on. And so he's asking a legitimate question. God, why, why is this going on? Why are you allowing this? You know, ever since Cain and Abel, there's been two types of people walking this, this planet. You've got the carnal, the wicked the sinful, and then you've got the spiritual and the godly who are walking in that path of light. The one operates under what kind of wisdom? Yeah, that sensual, worldly, devilish wisdom, and the other one, they walk after God's wisdom. So you you have those two types. You have those two types. And if there's one constant concerning life on this planet, and it's this... The godly will continually suffer at the hands of the wicked. That's just a fact of life. I'm sorry, Rumaloo, but that's true. The godly will continually suffer at the hands of the ungodly. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So you might as well settle that now. If you're going to live your life for Christ... If you're going to be an open testimony for the Lord on your job site, in the school, wherever it is you are, or is, however that works, then expect, expect persecution. Now often the godly cry out for help, and from time to time God does intervene on their behalf. I mean, the, the parting of the Red Sea, that's a, that's a pretty big <laughs> event right there. But sometimes God doesn't necessarily part the Red Sea. Now, sometimes God will um, intervene in a, what the old theologians used to call a providential way. In a providential way. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's the one who's in control. He's the one who's orchestrating the events and circumstances and even attitudes of, of folks. The only time the word providence is found is, is found in Acts 24.2. 
The only time providence, the word providence is found is in Acts 24.2 and it kind of gives us a definition of what providence is. In Acts 24.1 and after five days Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullius or Tutulus, who informed the governor against Paul when he was called forth, Tutulus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. So Tutulus, of course he was flattering Felix like any psychophant would, but we see the meaning of providence here. It means govern, governance means governance. Felix was the governor and he was providing that region he was governor over with peace and safety and security. So he was a pretty good governor. Well, God, that's, that's the providence of God. He's, he's, he's also the ultimate governor. And he provides the same thing for us, for his own people, you know, through various means and through the use of men and so forth and so on. But... There are times that God does not intervene. There are times that God does not intervene. When God does permit the godly to be victimized. When God does permit the godly to lose their lives. To be imprisoned. Not necessarily because of some sin on their part, like with Joseph but rather because of their godly lives they're being persecuted by the wicked and so sometimes God will permit those individuals to be imprisoned or lose their lives or jobs or whatever and it seems like he doesn't always give that deliverance what he does give is grace He gives us grace to bear under. Bear under that kind of treatment. Again, for his glory and for their ultimate good. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Now here's 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 a thought. And this might be a hard saying for some. But think about this. If God were forever interrupting human behavior in society by direct interventions, would you think that that would be an ideal environment that would promote spiritual growth? Did not Adam and Eve have an ideal environment? Exactly. What happened? If God were forever interrupting human behavior in society by direct interventions, that would take away that necessary process which disciplines and refines godliness. That develops and strengthens faith in God that matures one's character and separates the precious from the vile. We need the fire applied to the crucible. We need the fire applied to the crucible. I mean, what good would a crucible do? Remember the picture I had up here? If you stuff it full of ore, but yet you never light a fire under it. You're never, you're never going to purify that ore. You're never going to get that precious metal out of that, that earth unless you apply the heat unless you apply the heat and that's what that's what that's why God allows some of these unpleasant things to happen Jeremiah experienced that prophet Jeremiah boy talk about a rough ministry that man had a tough ministry turn to Jeremiah 15 Jeremiah was sent to a people that he was already told ahead of time that they weren't going to listen to his message. (laughs) Wow! What a ministry! 
And so Jeremiah, running into this, constantly running into this, he finds himself in a, in a, in a low point. Jeremiah 15.15 15. He says, O Lord, thou knowest, remember me and visit me and revenge me of my persecutors. Huh? Can anybody relate to that? Take me not away in thy long suffering. Know that for thy sake I have suffered rebuke. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing in my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. He's being faithful. He loves God. He loves God's word. Verse 17, he says, I sat not in the assembly of the mockers, nor rejoiced. I sat alone because of thy hand. For thou hast filled me with indignation. He says, I didn't take part of their wickedness. I was standing alone for you. Then verse 18, he asks the why question. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, incurable, which refuses to be healed? Wilt thou be altogether unto me as a liar and as waters that fail? He's asking the why question. God, I'm doing everything you're telling me to do. But yet, it just doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere. He's, in essence, he's saying, to what possible good is my preaching to these people doing if all it accomplishes is my being persecuted and being mistreated? And then the Lord answers him in verse 19, Therefore thus saith the Lord, If thou return, then will I bring thee again, and thou shalt stand before me. And if thou take forth the precious from the vile, Thou shalt be as my mouth. Let them return unto thee, but return not thou unto them. Everybody hated Jeremiah for his message. They considered Jeremiah a traitor to the nation. They considered Jeremiah an oppressor of the people because of his judgment of wrath to come unless they repent. Not a whole lot different today, folks. People who are calling out the wickedness of this nation and its leadership... They're trying to be silenced or shut down. No, nothing different there. Nothing new under the sun. But what God has... See, God never promised to deliver Jeremiah from the, from the persecution and the hardships. But what God did promise Jeremiah is that he wouldn't be carried off into captivity with the rest of the people, which he wasn't. And he also promised Jeremiah, who was on the verge of quitting and forfeiting his ministry, this is why the Lord rebuked him, he also promised Jeremiah that he would be there with him to strengthen him. He said in Jeremiah 15.20, this is the Lord speaking, he says, I will make thee unto this people, people a fenced brazen wall. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee. For I am with thee to save thee and to deliver thee, saith the Lord. And I will deliver thee out of the hand of the wicked, and I will redeem thee out of the hand of the terrible. I'm with you, Jeremiah. I'm going to strengthen you, Jeremiah. Yes, you will be delivered, Jeremiah. Yes, you're going to suffer persecution. Yes, all these bad things are going to happen to you. But in the end... You will be victorious because of me. Again, those two purposes. God's glory. And Jeremiah's good. See, Jeremiah is just like you and me. Yeah, his calling was a big calling. But he's just like you and me. He had to learn to trust in the Lord with all of his heart and lean not on his own understanding. Jeremiah had to obey God's calling to preach to a stiff-necked people. No matter how tough it got, he had to remain faithful to that calling. His finite understanding couldn't couldn't comprehend why it was happening the way it was happening. But God told him, stand strong. I'm with you. Hang in there. He says the same thing to us. Stand strong. Hang in there. I'm with you. 
God never promised that Jeremiah would be easy. But God did promise to provide all that Jeremiah would need to be faithful. And he promises you the same thing. He promises you the very same thing. Painfully, the temporal reality is that the innocent and godly suffer. And yeah, the wicked do seem to get away with it. They do seem to prosper. But if you read through the rest of Psalms 10, you see where the wicked man grossly underestimates God's justice. They don't get away with it. Even when they appear to be getting away with it, they're not getting away with it. What the psalmist comes to realize by faith, and the answer to his question of why, Lord, is this. It's better to enter heaven by way of weeping than go to hell laughing. It's better to enter into heaven weeping rather than go to hell laughing. So when we ask why, we better be prepared to have our perspective radically altered from how we perceive things are to how God sees things. And really, isn't that what we want to see? Sometimes it's a matter of perception on our part. Just be prepared to have your world rocked and experience a spiritual paradigm shift in your thinking. That's where growth resides. When you start thinking like the Lord thinks. Start seeing things the way the Lord sees things. Another reason why God doesn't always intervene on be, uh, when the wicked seem to be getting away with this, that time allows the wicked an opportunity to repent. That time also allows the wicked an opportunity to repent. Romans 2, 4-6, through 6, he says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation, the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. You know, sometimes God doesn't bring the hammer down on the wicked because he wants them to repent. He's, allow, he's giving them time to repent. Praise God for that. Praise God for his long-suffering. How many times could God have put the hammer down on me? And he didn't. Second... Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness. Why isn't God doing something? But his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish. Do you believe that? That all should come to repentance. I, I can think of individuals right now that I thought they would never get saved. <laughs> There's no way in the world that that individual is going to get saved. And then one Sunday you see them up in the baptismal tank. And then you see them serving the Lord. You don't give up on people until they breathe their last. Second Peter 3.15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. You know, it could be God's not bringing the hammer down because he's wanting them to repent. He's allowing them time to repent. Again, be prepared to have your perspective. When you ask that question, why aren't you doing something? To have your perspective radically altered. Turn to Psalms chapter 22. Uh, Psalms chapter 22. Here's another why question. Psalms 22.1. Somebody want to read that for me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my Lord? 
Here's another incident where the psalmist is asking why. The why question. And this is interesting, this particular question. Do you know, do you know who else asked this very same question? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus did. On the cross, right? Mark 15:34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, "Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani," which is being interpreted, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" You know, as you read through this remarkable Psalm, chapter 22, it's almost as if the psalmist is standing right there at the foot of the cross and watching the crucifixion. I did a study on Psalms 22 one time in almost, almost, if not every verse you can go back to the, one of the Gospels and find its correlation. It's an amazing psalm. You know, in times of extreme duress when your hut is on fire and all your world is going up in smoke it might seem like God has abandoned you. Has anybody felt like that? That God's abandoned you? God's kind of left you out there to dry? I believe Job thought this sometimes with what he was going through. Turn to Job chapter 10. Now she decides to walk. Job chapter 10, verse 18. Wherefore then hast thou brought me forth out of the womb? Oh, that I had given up the ghost, and no eye had seen me. I should have been as though I had not been. I should have been carried from the womb to the grave. Are not my days few? Cease then, and let me alone, that I may take comfort a little. He's talking to his counselors right there. Before I go whence I shall not return, even to the land of darkness and the shadow of death. A land of darkness is darkness itself, and of the shadow of death without any order, and where the light is as darkness. Now when things go awry, has anybody in here been tempted to shut the doors, close the curtains, climb into your bed and pull your cover the covers over your face? Everybody anybody been there? You just want to die. You just want to be left alone. Is this God abandoning us? Or are we simply trying to hide from our misery? In, another, in the same chapter, Job says in Job 10.1, My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. That shows you where Job's at. I will say unto God, Do not condemn me. Show me wherefore thou contendest with me. Is it good unto thee that thou shouldst oppress, that thou shouldst despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of, thy, of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as a man seeth? Of course, God sees differently than a man does. Are thy days as the days of man? Are thy years as man's days? That thou inquirest after my iniquity and searchest after my sin? Thou knowest that I am not wicked, and there is none that can deliver out of thine hand. But yet that's exactly what the wicked want you to believe. He wants you to wrongly believe about our Father that He is whacking you for some reason. That He has abandoned you. That He has left you alone. And if He can get you in this bitter state of mind, He will accomplish that. And He'll leave you there to wallow in your self-pity and in your misery. Is that where we should stay? Is that where we should stay? Of course not. You know, he can, put, he can put that guilt trip on you. Don't let him do that. Don't let him do that. Psalms 26.2 says, As the bird by wandering, as a swallow by flying, so the curse causeless shall not come. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to get you into a place where he thinks, where he gets you to think that God has abandoned you to your fate. 
But that's not true. That's a lie. And when you start thinking that way, guess what you do? You abandon God. That's what he wants. That's what he wants. Now, sometimes we do. We suffer because of sin on our part, because of some disobedience on our part. But we've already seen in Psalms chapter 22 and verse 1, this is a prophetic utterance of who? Jesus Christ. Now, is Jesus Christ a sinner? Is he a sinner? No, he's the innocent one. He's the innocent one who died for the guilty. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So why, why, why did Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Habakkuk, 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 that guy. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Thou art a pure eyes unto behold evil. And cannot and canst not look on iniquity. And so, as Jesus Christ was made sin for us, the Father couldn't look upon that iniquity, which was our iniquity, and so he turned his eyes away from his Son. Because at that moment, his Son became sin for us. His, sin, his son became sin for us. And praise God. Praise God for that. And that's why the son cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because for the first time in eternity, fellowship was broken between the father and the son. For you and me. For you and me. Jesus says, for those who suffer for righteousness, he says in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are they which, perse- which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. He says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So if you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, you're earning rewards in heaven. You're earning rewards in heaven. And when we do right and we get the business by the world, rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. God doesn't abandon us. He never abandons us. Turn uh, back to Psalms 22 if you're still there, great. But look at Psalms 22. I want you to see how this psalm ends. A lot of times we focus on the first part of Psalms 22, all about the suffering Savior. But that's not where this psalm ends. Look at verse 24. For he, hath not, he, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows, for, my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born that he hath done this. He had to suffer and die. Be buried and rose again. Now he is sitting at the right hand of majesty. And one day he's going to return and be Lord of Lord and King of Kings. God does not forsake his people. God does not forsake his people. 
Hebrews 13.5 Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have for he said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. God will not abandon his people. 1 John 5, 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? Whether it's the initial shock of the, of the matter, or it's a prolonged um, exposure to some adverse situation, while you're being faithful to God, you're living his word out in your life, Do not let the devil get you ensnared in this lie of his that God has abandoned you. He never abandons his people. I don't care how dark it is. I don't care how terrible it must seem. God never abandons his people. Psalm 31.22, the psalmist said, For I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Then he says, Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. When you're in that place, when you think that God has cut you off and abandoned you, what is the first thing you are to do? Just like what he says here. You go to him in prayer. You go to him in prayer. Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. He says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. Well, God's not going to hear me because I've got all this bitterness in my heart. Wait a minute. What does he say here? If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee. God's always approachable. Always approachable. Sometimes we forget that when we pull the covers over our head. He's always approachable. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and his word do I hope. There's that word again. There's that word again. Jesus Christ was abandoned so that we would never be. Jesus Christ was forsaken. So that we never will be. We're his. We're his children. We belong to him. So when the enemy lies to you about the Lord abandoning him, you rebuke the enemy. And you stand on that truth. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You rebuke the enemy. You tell him, you're telling me a lie. That is not true. I don't care what I feel in my heart. I don't care what my circumstances are. God is with me this very moment. You believe that? Yeah, now that things are going good, you continue to believe that. Okay, do I have time to go to the third one? Yeah. Psalm 74. Turn to Psalm 74. So what about those times when I am out of God's will? What about those times when, yeah, I'm being a rascal? Can I still ask why? Psalm 74, 1. He says, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Now this psalm is concerning God's chastisement on his disobedient people. When Israel would sin and rebel against the Lord, he would send their enemies uh, to chastise them. 
to chastise them because of their disobedience. Why would God do this? Why does God send chastisement into his people's lives? To prompt them to repent, right? From whatever it is that they've gotten themselves askew with, he sends chastisement into, the, into, into God's people's lives to get them to repent, and to return unto the Lord. That's what repentance is. Hebrews 12, uh, 10 says, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, speaking about earthly parents, but he for our prophet, speaking about God, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews twelve eleven. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You know, if God didn't care about you, he wouldn't chastise you. If God didn't care about you, he would just let you go off your merry way into oblivion. If God didn't care about you, he wouldn't discipline you. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. This is not only true in in the New Testament, it's also true in the Old Testament. In fact, right here in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 3.11, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the father of the son in whom he delighteth. So when we are chastised, when we're you know, doing something stupid, that's because he loves us. And that's what Psalm 74 is. It's, it's a prayer of a godly man interceding on behalf of a people who are undergoing chastisement because of, you know, because of uh, rebelling against God. And this man is, is intervening and pleading for God's mercy upon his people. That's what he's doing. He says in Psalm 74, 18, he says, Remember this that the enemy hath reproached the Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name. He says, O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. Have respect unto the covenant, for dark places of the earth are full of habitations of cruelty. So he's saying, God, remember us, your people. Remember your covenant with us. Have mercy on us. Forgive us. And have mercy on us. You know, one thing that God remembers is his covenant. He remembers his covenant with his people. Genesis 9.15, I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. He said that to Noah. God remembers his covenants with his people. God, you realize that we also have a covenant with God? Can anybody tell me what that covenant is? There you go. Hebrews 13, 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, who you glory forever and ever. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we now have an everlasting covenant with God. And so when God chastises us, he's doing it because he loves us for Jesus' sake. And what he wants to produce in us is what? Fruit unto righteousness. Fruit. That's why uh, John 15.2 talks about him pruning the branches on the vine. The vine dresser, you know why they prune those branches? Yeah, to promote fruit bearing. To promote fruit bearing. So if God's pruning you, (laughs) rejoice. Because he's seeking fruit from your life. And isn't that what we want? Don't we want fruit in our life unto the Lord? I do. I do. The intent is to bear fruit. You know, I once spoke to a young man about how he was sure that he was saved. 
And he told me, I'm sure that I'm saved because because, uh, I'm experiencing the chastening of the Lord in my life right now. I then asked him if he understood the purpose of the Lord's chastening. He said, yeah. He wants me to repent. And then he says this, I just don't want to right now. Well, he's got a lot of pruning. Don't put yourself in that situation. Don't put yourself in that situation. When asking the question why God, why uh, of God when one is experiencing this pruning, this discipline, be prepared to examine yourself personally to, to discover the reason why. Right? And when you discover the reason why, <laughs> do something about it. But sadly, this is where a lot of God's people are. Yeah, I know God's hand is, you know, I know he's on me for this and that, but I'm just not ready to repent. That's a pretty pretty hard place to be. Pretty hard place to be. O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Well, the answer should be obvious if you're not willing to repent. If you're not willing to repent. So, I got some I got a lot more but I don't have time. No surprise there. But let me leave you with this and I might pick it up next Sunday. The important thing to see here is when these whys are asked, they're not accusatory. They're not accusing God of any wrongdoing. They're not accusing God of being unfair or cruel or mean. Right? Uh, These whys, they're asking for clarification. They're asking to help them understand. Even some of these are even pleas of, of, of helping them out of their troubles or through their troubles. But you never read about an accusation being thrown at God. In each of these examples of asking, what we see are people who are earnestly seeking God's face in the midst of their circumstances. Either for comprehension, or strength, or aid, but never an accusation. To me, these are cries from a child to their father. An honest petition to understand what do I need to see? What do I need to understand? What do I need to fix? Is it okay to ask God why? Yeah. But it all depends on the heart attitude. It all depends on the heart attitude. Um, We're going to look at Job briefly when we get together next time because that's a man who had had a reason to ask why so we're going to look at Job a little bit next time but for now we're just going to close right there um, and we're going to get our vision conference started so let me close in a word of prayer and then we'll get going Father in heaven we thank you Lord God that you're not afraid of our questions 